Good morning, everyone. This is March 19th, 2035, and I am joined by Alicia. Hello. How's it going? Not bad. Are you ready to finally actually be done talking about this? Uh, never, but... Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, seems like that. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Procession of Conspiracies, Chapter 2. Uh, I've codenamed this one the Gipper File, because... Even though Ronald Reagan has essentially nothing to do with this, uh, that's just a great nickname, and yeah. I think everybody should call him that. Um, Alicia, we—I don't know if we actually specifically mentioned it in the previous procession of conspiracies episode, but uh, we are investigating 1980 October surprise or lack thereof. Um, and to put the question that we were investigating as simply as possible, it was. Did Reagan delay the Iranian hostage crisis in the interest of beating Carter in the election? Um, and that question's very, uh, actually ended up being relatively boring in the grand scheme of things because there's so many other cool things going on around this <laughs> yeah. that were way more interesting than that. Yeah. Um, sure. Like, for example, I, uh, and I imagine we will talk about this quite a bit. Uh, the nature of the intelligence agencies mm -hmm. going back a long ways here. I don't know which. I don't know which uh, way we want to start with this, but uh, that that actually seems like a really important preface to put on this. I guess for people who actually know literally nothing about what we're talking about, um, which is totally understandable. I was essentially one of these people going into this. Um, in 1979, a bunch of students took over the Iranian embassy. American the American embassy, and for 444 days, some number of hostages, which I know the number of days, but not the number of hostages, uh, were held there under protest specifically of the harboring of the Shah of Iran, who was in power, installed by the CIA, essentially, um, for decades prior to, very pro-Western, imperialist, not all that nationalist entity, most of the country at a relatively low level basically hated the guy. Um, but it took until the late 70s for them to overthrow him. And then Jimmy Carter harbored this man uh, during illness, which was a uh, gaff of gaffes. Uh, we'll probably come back to Jimmy Carter at some point and the, uh, the degree to which, uh, to quote one of the guys from a prominent documentary about this, Carter. Carter had a really big problem of just wanting to do the right thing all the time mm -hmm. that really bit him in the ass. Yeah, I, I think that's actually one of the reasons for, like, the acrimony towards Carter for, on the part of the Iranian students is that not only did many people believe and understand that the Shah was put into place by the United States in a way that, like, over the CIA overthrew the democratic government in order to reinstall the Shah and give him a good, strong uh, power position so that the British could continue exploiting Iran for, um, for oil. Uh, yeah, I mean, Iran, as a lot of the Middle East, but in this particular period, Iran was a hotbed for material wealth that was easily exploitable because it had not up to that point been exploited. Um, yes and no. Like, I think my understanding is that the oil boom in Iran happens close to the same time as the rest of it. So, like, as the general, like, as the first, like, global oil boom is kind of fading out, they finally discovered oil in Iran. And 
they have um, the concessions rather famous, the Darcy Confession, which was signed by, um, I think, the, the Shah at the time, because I think it was uh, just a monarchy at the, at the point in time that these concessions were signed, which allowed um, the British company there to, I, I, they basically had full rights, full mineral rights in, in Iran. So Iranian oil could only be extracted through Anglo-Persian, uh, which is the, the company that they used to uh, extract oil. So, and what's the date range we're talking about here? This is um, before, let's, let's say before the 1930s. Okay. Um, so, and then up to Mossadegh's government where he uh, nationalized the oil. So that's in like, I think like 1950 is when the Mossadegh era starts. And they're supposed to be getting paid 10% of the profits on Anglo-Persian, um, but, Anglo- but the British government won't open the books. Um, so they don't know whether or not they're getting paid 10%. So, so Iranians were living in slums uh, to to work on on these oil rigs and stuff like that, and just not uh, none of the money is staying in the country or coming back to the country. So that's it's a popular strategy. Yeah, that's a little background on oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's it, it should be clear to the audience. Um, Alicia and I have some differing opinions on some aspects of the story, but there are a handful of basic historical realities that one has to assume in trying to assess what's going on here. Um, one of them is that there is an outstanding amount of, and this is the reason we needed to bring up the intelligence services early, a lot of dramatically incompetent, but nonetheless brute forcefully successful imperial domination of this area. <laughs> incompetent, but nonetheless catastrophic. Capable, yet. It's it's basically, we could have done a better job exploiting the hell out of these people, uh, but the job we did is the job we did. And they and the people of the region are mostly aware that that's happening. Um, they're not entirely blind to the fact that America and Britain in particular, but other foreign powers are doing exactly what it feels like we do today. That, that's got historical precedent going back about a century now. Um, it's, it's just the way it is. And that allows for entities like the, uh, the inimitable Ruhollah Khomeini to uh, come into the picture in this story. Um, so zooming back forward to the, uh, the hostage crisis real quick. At, at the point the students take over the embassy, the president of Iran, uh, post-Shah, has been instated. It's not the guy America wanted to win. It's a guy named uh, Bani Sadr. Uh, I apologize for the pronunciation of every name in this entire and thing. And place. And place. And just everything. Entity. Yeah. CIA is the one we know how to say. Yeah, we can say CIA. <laughs> we got CIA OSS. William Casey is probably how we pronounced his name. But the... Um, but uh, Khomeini is the power behind the throne here. Uh, Bani Sadr uh, was democratically elected, and there is a constitution in Iran that has been rat- ratified by the judiciary of Iran, who is effectively the clergy class of Iran, uh, headed up at the time by the Ayatollah Khomeini. The Ayatollah is a weird guy uh, in a lot of entertaining respects, and he ended up actually being the bigger question mark underneath this conversation. That um, I found more entertaining 
for the most part, to investigate than whether or not Reagan's cronies were doing crazy things in the background. Because anything that happened in Iran had to, at a major executive level, had to go through Khomeini at some point. Uh, he, ha- he essentially had veto power going back all the way to 79. And this is demonstrated multiple times. Um, Carter comes to public agreements with the president, with the parliament, with the foreign minister of Iran. Um, and at least on three occasions, Khomeini basically holds up his hand and says, now we're going to hold on to these guys. Uh, the great Satan will not be appeased. And, um, and so they sit until a deal goes all the way through after Carter loses the election. And the hostages are finally released 20 minutes after Reagan accepts the oath of office, uh, which you might think is weird timing. And a lot of people tended to think so as well. <laughs> um, so a guy named Gary Sick, this is much later. This is a massive compression of history. But to j- just to get you to where our primary sources are coming from here, a naval intelligence officer who became a director of intelligence, uh, Gary Sick, a multi a multi-generation, multi-presidential kind of officer of the law, put together the pieces describing the conspiracy that we're investigating here. Um, It centers around a man named William Casey, predominantly, who appears to have been the head of the, uh, the head of clandestine operations for Reagan's presidential campaign. Uh, William Casey is an OSS officer, or he was back when that organization existed. Uh, The OSS, for those who are blessed enough to not know about it, um, was America's first attempt to have a clandestine MI6-like institution, um, and its record was abysmal, uh, but that didn't stop it from existing uh, then or now as the CIA. Um, and William Casey was one of its uh, formers and proponents, and that's no different here. Uh, Gary Sick basically finds corroborating circumstantial evidence, and granted there's no smoking gun, that's why it's a conspiracy, um, that a bunch of meetings happened in Paris and Madrid, among other places, between Casey, other Reagan constituents, and prominent arms dealers and foreign ministers of Iran. Never specifically the president of Iran, never specifically Khomeini. Khomeini always operated through channels. Nobody specific. You, you had to be one of the people who talked to Khomeini to talk to Khomeini. Like he didn't, he, he seemed relatively closed, all things considered, um, which is probably part of the reason he was very hard to influence. But the idea is that in a handful of negotiations, Reagan promised what Carter would not to the Iranians, which was arms. Iran, having been under a Shah that was seriously pro-Western for a long time, uh, most of their weapon systems, as, and this is, this is again, this is a theme that will be in, intimately familiar to anyone who's been following the Middle East up to the present day. Um, most of their weapon systems were provided by America. Um, we make a whole lot of guns and aircraft and boats, and other countries need those things, and we are almost always willing to sell it to them. And in the case, especially when you have a um, a Shah like uh, Pahlavi between uh, 53 and 79, um, most of Iran had been retrofitted to work with American arms. And um, during the Iranian hostage crisis, two things, intertwined things happened. Uh, The first one was, obviously, we froze all Iranian assets related to the United States. So we stopped giving the military arms. They had billions in bank assets that we froze. Basically, we just, we embargoed them fully. And the other thing that happened was uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Iran. 
in September of 1980, which granted that was relatively late in the hostage crisis, but it certainly made it a much greater imperative that uh, Iran find tires for their aircraft, which they did not have at the time. That was the specific one that they cited, but there's hundreds of millions of dollars worth of other equipment that they really, really wanted, and Carter wouldn't give it to them because Carter, um, for a couple of reasons, not all of which were his fault, um, didn't want it to look like he was rewarding Iran for releasing the hostages. He didn't want to make it an arms for hostages thing, and for obvious reason, the optics on that are really bad. Um, the other reason uh, being a really kind of convoluted thing, which uh, we may put up a list of the the primary sources that are interesting to investigate here. But this this particular tidbit, I believe, was in uh, Guess of the Ayatollah by Mark Bowden. When the Carter administration was negotiating late term after the Iraq war had started, Iran had conditions under which they would theoretically release the hostages. And most of the time, they included something about weaponry. There was a curious omission in those demands of the weapons themselves, not specifically of the contracts that were already being fulfilled that were frozen, but of new contracts that they were going to need to fight a massive power in the Middle East like Saddam Hussein at the time, who had the support of a lot of other entities, including publicly the United States itself. Um, <laughs> so It's also worth noting that like, like you were kind of alluding to, millions of dollars of weapons and vehicles and other things that they already have are useless without the ability to check the inventory and make sure everything is running uh, properly, which is something that they couldn't do without American weapons makers. Yeah. No, they need the maintenance on American arms is extremely laborious, and we have a lot of legit. This is. I've been told that this has gotten better over time, but it almost seems like an insurance policy uh, by American arms dealers that our stuff is really, really hard to maintain um, in the grand scheme. It works real good. It works real good, but you just, you know, you got to keep, you have to keep paying to keep the systems in place. So a lot of just in terms of physical and logistical things, yeah. uh, like, or like weapons that they technically have are actually logistically useless. Yeah. Because they can't be properly maintained. Like, yeah. for example, the aircraft. The tires on the aircraft, uh, the F-4 fighters, I believe, were the ones they were using at the time. Um, they were completely useless because they could not take off or land <laughs> without tires. Um, and that was actually an interesting note for me in terms of investigating conspiracies more broadly, especially this kind of conspiracy. Because I guess I had never thought that uh, thought about it because I'm not that interested in in weapons in general yeah. or you know military like the nitty gritty military stuff has never really interested me that much but you can figure out who is making deals with whom based on what weapons they have and like when and not just like what gun it is but like what the little bits and pieces look like like how they're designed and things like that so if you if you develop some kind of facility with understanding where these things come from you could actually use that as like um as evidence of some kind of transaction or relationship. Yeah, you do a bit of forensic science into the uh the construction of the weapons and such. More more than just what machine gun, yeah. which is the extent that's, to which I thought of that's, it. That's yeah, well that's the super obvious one, but yeah, no, the make and model and the particular kinds of accessories that people are using and all that stuff, you can bring it all together. Like for example, if 
in a couple of years, the Reagan administration would want to sell those weapons to someone else across the sea in exchange for uh, other materials, which may have something to do with why we even found out about this in the first place. But uh, we may get into that in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that ends up also being, you know, that's, that's a route that you can go down for exploring this is the, uh, the military side. But somewhere along the line, Carter doesn't want to seem like he's appeasing the Iranians. Um, he want, because the Iranians are in the wrong in his eyes for sealing the hostages. And at a very superficial level, he's absolutely right. But in true Carter fashion, his principles are ignoring a massive hole in the moral rectitude of the Americans' position in harboring a Shah who was so blatantly American. And this is the thing that I alluded to early, that Carter gets shot in the foot for doing what seems to be the, on the surface, the right thing at any given time. He's not willing to invade Iran to get the hostages back. He's not willing to trade blood for blood. And when he does, it um, very nearly destroys him right there, like even his military operation to do so. Uh, operation Desert One, Feel for, I won't get into the details of that. Feel free to read what a military logistical disaster looks like in action. It's, it is remarkable how poorly it went. The code name for the operation is actually Eagle Claw, not Desert One. Desert One is the staging area where everything starts going haywire. Uh, poorly enough that it spawned the United States SOCOM, our Special Operations Command Force, which did not exist prior to Operation Desert One because we, we didn't realize how important it is for the branches of the military to talk to each other, weirdly enough. Um, but thankfully, we've sorted all that out. In any case, uh, Carter... Yeah. We figured it all out. Oh, yeah, no, it's all good now. The SEALs talk to the Air Force. It's all, it's all fine. It's danger close is no longer an issue. We get, we get the bad guys. I don't know if you read the news. We get the bad guys. <laughs> um, but uh, but what, this, what this is culminating to, and the, the reason I'm, I'm trying to blow through the history real quick here, is that I think, and Alicia, I, I believe we have sort of a consensus on this, I think Gary Sick is right at least in the broad strokes, if not in all the details, I think William Casey, basic head, the, the spearhead of Reagan's administration going into the campaign, orchestrated meetings with arms dealers and with foreign ministers of Iran to clandestinely ship arms to Iran through Israel. And that that delayed the Iranian hostage crisis potentially. However, and this is what makes it a weird conspiracy, I'm not convinced that Khomeini would not have delayed the hostages' release anyway. Mm-hmm. Because just reading the standard history, if we just look at what Carter did and we look at what Khomeini did and we look at the negotiations in the meantime, it seems entirely plausible that Khomeini specifically and Iranians as a whole wanted to stick a thumb in Carter's eye as hard as possible by whatever means they could get away with. Totally. There's there's very strong um, testimony and very convincing things that they legitimately just hated Carter. Not in the least because he uh, presented himself as a humanitarian, uh, but stayed in support of the Shah, even as things got increasingly repressive, according to some sources. 
I mean, really investigating Iranian history is is something like investigating a conspiracy theory, <laughs> especially if you're coming at it from the like, what's the role of the uh, American intelligence in this uh, country? It's just almost impossible to. And you were saying you wish you had another year to investigate this. It wouldn't even specifically be that. This was a good gateway drug into investigating the whole area, the time period. Totally. I I would definitely spend more time learning about Iran because it's an interesting crucible for a lot of um, 20th century issues. Yeah. Like, and basically any time that you've looked at something and been like, wait, was this KGB? (laughs) (laughs) Like, all of... And the answer's pretty much always yes. <laughs> How do you know? Because I certainly don't know. I mean, sometimes, uh, some things are obvious, uh, or at least uh, Soviet propaganda, which apparently Carter was able to counter and create it, our own uh, CIA-style propagandizing. Um, yeah, going on through East Europe in particular, I think, at the time, but... But no, Carter, ironically enough, we spent so much time treating Russia as a military enemy, we didn't actually consider the possibility of just doing counter-propaganda. Yeah, I mean, that's what it says in Legacy of Ashes. But if you look at, um, again, Operation Ajax is what I I have read about most recently. Describe Operation Ajax. Operation Ajax was the operation in um, 1953 where the CIA overthrew Mossadegh, who was the democratically elected leader of Iran at the time. And he um, had nationalized oil, which pissed off the Brits. That monster. So they went to America, and they were like, hey guys, you know that this place is full of communists, right? And if you don't do something, it's going to fall to the communists, and then they'll have all of the oil that we currently have. (laughs) (laughs) So... Um, the CIA was like, well, you know, us good old boys can't have that, um, and went over there and literally overthrew the government. I think, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's grandson was in charge of the operation. A fitting legacy. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Indeed. He arrives at Iran and immediately starts saying, like, the most hateable things you can imagine, like... Like, he's like, oh, this is what it must have felt like to go on safari. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. <sighs> this, uh, I feel so alive, feeling a, a government crumble under my feet. Damn. Ho, ho. <laughs> yeah. That's how granddad must have felt. Yeah, and it just emotionally, it's a really tough story to read because in the end, uh, the government is overthrown by uh, street people protesting in the street. Um, making like these giant pro Shah demonstrations, which are at least partially funded by the CIA. And the reason that Mossadegh's people aren't in the streets is that he was approached by Americans who said, "We're being harassed by your people because of the because obviously anti imperialist um, rhetoric and sentiment was really strong." They, and so the Americans went to Mossadegh and said, "Hey." Our, our families are being harassed by your people because this is getting out of control, blah, 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 blah. So Mossadegh was like, oh, shit. And he, he told his people not to counter-protest, to prevent violence, but it was it, the urging of uh, 
Americans. And, like, that's really hard when, like, the CIA uses our good name abroad and people's pro-American sentiment in order to do something fairly evil. This will be a hot button for anyone who is who has their finger on the, uh, the humanitarian issues of foreign power over the last 40 years, but it's always been uh, Noam Chomsky's thing. When, when people talk about how terrible America is abroad, they are specifically talking about our foreign delegates on the behalf of an American people that in every era have not been in favor of these things when they've been aware of them. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's not even necessarily a strange phenomenon, it's just a reliable, depressing one that it turns out, even when we're talking about, you know, the American voter who votes in their self-interest in one sense or doesn't understand their self-interest in another, they always seem to actually vote for the more humanitarian solutions. <laughs> and then our government reliably does not do those things. Yeah. And that's a huge part of what makes the conspiracy, like a conspiracy in Iran, impossible to entangle. Because it's been purposefully uh, obscured by so many people over so much time. The ideological confusion between the different parties. I mean, understanding Khomeini requires a book. Because the way that he was talked about during his, during his time, um, if you didn't have primary sources, it was essentially impossible to know. I mean, the way they talk about him does not at all map to the person he appears to have been. Even um, in Legacy of Ashes yesterday, I was listening to um, the bits about Iran. Just for listener reference, the book Alicia is referring to, Legacy of Ashes, is an extremely well-documented history of the CIA leading from the OSS up through modern day, written by the journalist Tim Weiner. And not to bash the book, but just that, like, he was talking, he, he was, he seems very reasonable, if a little bit conventional or cautious which kind of makes sense and yeah. is useful for for you as a reader or listener because again you get so deep into these things that you don't know which way is up anymore so having like <laughs> having even like a conventional boring imperialist like it, uh, perspective it, on it. it it is a funny perspective because it's impossible to read this much about the cia and come away with a good opinion but it is funny how tim coming to an a uh, consensus that the CIA has been a complete disaster from its conception. Because all, it's just failed to it's failed to push forward our imperialist and, mission. And it's it's the way it's phrased is basically like you lied to me. <laughs> this isn't the America we're supposed to be. Like that's like the attitude with which it's put forward. Yeah, and it's really good. I mean, I like I'm gonna go through the whole thing soon, hopefully. But it's it's. It seems pretty essential so far to at least like get the the groundwork that would let you think about the problem um, from the most basic like public available clearly documented documents, right? Yeah, it's it's a pretty insuperable text for the purpose, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, totally. So he he's talking in this like very reasonable way, and uh, then he gets to Khomeini and just like. Out of nowhere, he, like, can't understand human anymore. And he's, like, you know, because this religious zealot wanted to evade, invade Iraq for his dumb, weird, religious zealot reasons that are totally under, uh, not understandable to any <laughs> other person. When it's, like... He's crazy. It's, it's just wild because, like, we all know about, like, Alsace and Lorraine 
and like how like that Alsace Lorraine is like a point of contention in uh, for the French, right? And like we can all understand why a country, even whether it's right or wrong, would be interested in reclaiming uh, a part of the world that they think of as their territory. Yeah. Like that's really foundational to like all of the 20th century. And like when we start thinking about nations in the way that we think of them now, but um, when, you know, when we get to a point where we're, we're, where our ideas about what a nation are resemble contemporary ideas, I think we're all able to understand the border conflicts that come out of that and saying like, well, no, this is really a part of our nation. It's not really a part of your nation. And it's our nation, like, culturally and the people there love us and blah, blah, blah. And they're more our people than your people. Um, and you're the foreign colonizer here of that land. Like, everybody fucking gets that in, like, every other context. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what actually is very simple and a basic part of like any history we've ever been taught that's remotely connected to a war uh suddenly goes out the window when you're talking about Khomeini because we're totally unable to conceive of him as a person yeah and again i think a lot of that aside from the obvious more basic american versus soviet propagandist media that we were dealing with at the time that made those understandings essentially impossible on its face um, the abstraction layer where he is, where where he was actually a power behind the throne. He was not a monarch. In fact, he was rather opposed to them. Uh, he was, he, you know, to be fair, he was basically. If you read, if you read him on him, he was opposed to himself. To be fair, but you know, what are you going to do? Again, very pragmatic. <laughs> He's a very pragmatic guy. There's there's plenty of evidence to suggest that, um, but we were not seeing it at the time. Yeah. Damn. We were very mad at Khomeini the whole time he was around. Oh, it's so hard when you read the, um, or hear the hostages talk about what they went through. It is just heartbreaking and painful. And it's especially hard as, in kind of the same way as what we were talking about before, uh, which is like, um, I remember, I think his name is Charles Scott. He, he was uh, giving testimony at, or, or he was making a statement in the uh, in one of the hearings that they had to initiate the task force, and he was saying that he was a lot of them. I think were tortured for being CIA, so they were being punished for crimes that that were committed in our name. You know, they were being punished for being Americans when America means like. Lies, deceit, torture, uh, you know, I, the, the great Satan selling guns to warlords. Yeah, I didn't invent the great Satan line. That was Khomeini's name for America. That yeah. was his shorthand. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously had a big influence on our perception of the Middle East. And it's so understandable on every front from the human perspective how you could come into it and think like, think, oh, they just hate us. They just want to destroy <laughs> us, you know? They hate our way of life, to use the more modern iteration of it. Yeah, but, I mean, some stuff it's like... But I'm saying from an Iranian perspective, too, as well as an American perspective, it's easy to look at the situation and be like, oh, they just want to, like, take us for all we're worth. Yep, especially when the messages of the leaders that 
we're talking about don't actually make it over here. Um, and it's impossible to know how much of what we say makes it over there unmolested. I mean, those messages have to be getting confused or polluted. I mean, it would be hard to do it even if channels were completely open. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's, a, it's a problem that no one seems to be all that interested in solving. I mean, it's the, the, modern, the modern parallel for this that I find very uh, funny and sad at the same time is that Al-Qaeda is currently advertising itself as a moderate version of ISIS. <laughs> Not ISIS. <laughs> like, that's, that's a sentence that doesn't make sense to a basic American understanding of foreign policy at the moment. Like, the idea that Al-Qaeda could in any way describe itself as a moderate, gentle form of another kind of Islam, does, it doesn't f- register with the way that we talk about Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Like, that's just, it's completely off the table. Well, and you remember, like, early after September 11th, when they were, when everybody was talking about why 9-11 happened, and they were like, well, you know, they just hate our way of life. Yeah. That's what you were saying, and, like, all of those kinds of, they think we're the great Satan. I heard that multiple times, and I had no context for it because I was, like, in seventh grade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I had no idea. Caveat. <laughs> We're not that old. <laughs> I didn't know what was true and what wasn't about what people were saying. I'm still not entirely convinced I know, but that's... I do know something, which is that they're talking about different people at different times. Yeah. <laughs> getting them all confused <laughs> into one big brown mess over there. <laughs> that is absolutely still happening. Yeah. No. To pull this back to the conversation at hand, though, which we're going to have to do a bunch of times, I'm sure, because this, this spirals this spirals in a lot of different directions. Um, so, Israel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh. Stepping from the absolute vagaries of history in both directions onto a landmine. Um, so what is Israel doing here? Uh, you tell me. Israel's nearby, right? They have a hand in. They have a hand in these politics. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could talk. Maybe we could talk about how they were implicated in Iran Contra. We could definitely. We we could. We got to start somewhere. That's as good a place as any. Well, maybe we should start from. Um, intelligence under Carter and the CIA under Carter sure. so that we can talk a little bit about like the development of the networks that were used in Iran-Contra. Yeah, sure. You can do that. Totally. Actually, you know, the private involvement in, um, in global affairs in order to sway an election at least happened once before under Nixon. Where Nixon told Helms, Helms was the director of the CIA at the time, and told him that if he wanted to be the director of the CIA, he needed to make sure that the war in Vietnam didn't end until he became president. So that's a very CIA thing to do. Yeah, and I that's a that came out quite recently. I think Um, in two thousand seven, I think they put the notes in the. in the Nixon library um, that like reveal that this was definitely true. And he worked in multiple ways to keep the V 
Vietnam War going um, to make sure that he was elected into office. And so a lot of the things that happen that certainly happen later um, come into play around that time where there's um, all this fuckery in uh, Laos. And um, describe the fuckery in Laos. I can't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would. I would if I could. There's something happening in Laos, and it's very bad. <laughs> and I'm upset about it, <laughs> even if I don't fully know the shape of it. Yeah. Um, and then there's um, there's the beginnings of um, the uh, intelligence community getting involved in um, selling drugs. 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 So um, that was really funny. I can't remember where I read it, but um, but somebody was like, "No, all they did was like keep warlords in place and make heroin cheaper." Oh, okay. Like that's all that that's happened all right. in the end. Okay. In like uh, our involvement in Asia, <laughs> like. Well, I guess it was worth it then. It kept heroin prices down. Fuck communism. But yeah, that too. So anyway, so there's there are a lot of horrifying things being done um, in order to keep this war going. And like some of this is public and on the record. Um, I don't know. I don't know about the stuff about drugs because I didn't have time to investigate it because because I had a lot of reading to do. <laughs> yeah, there was a pretty long stack. I, I don't know what of the primary sources or secondary sources we want to. I will actually disclose that we investigated for this, but it was a much, much, let's say it was considerably longer than the first ConProc episode. If you go to the page for this podcast on machinationlog.com, a bibliography of our research should be there. But yeah, so my larger point is that this, this has already started. Like this happened at least once in order to help a Republican win an election. And like you had, uh, mentioned earlier, Casey had been involved in intelligence for a very, very long time. Oh, if anyone who was part of the OSS back in 41 through 45 never left. They didn't leave until they died. It was apparently too much fun. Well, some of them got fired by Carter. Yeah. By President Carter. And then they left um, because they had, which gave them the opportunity to um, establish their private enterprises, which were later perhaps used in Iran-Contra. Maybe. So there's, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in terms of the OSS, in terms of like the, the legacy of um, in the intelligence community in the United States as an extension of like Wall Street espionage and like global, uh, in shaping global events. Yeah, that's, that's one thing you end up, realizing very rapidly when you investigate the CIA and the OSS in particular, though the CIA just became a more institutionalized version of it. Um, when you watch James Bond, you get the impression that James Bond is this um, grown in a vat kind of guy that just, that that's exactly who he always wanted to be. Um, James Bond, I think even in the novelizations of it, even in the romantic versions of it, he's just, he's a very well-to-do, attractive playboy uh, who likes to shoot at communists. Like these people are are actually bankers, they are actually lawyers. Like they do these things and then they go, but I want to do more for my country, uh, you know, assuming a little bit of qui bono somewhere there. But there's um or a quid pro quo. But 
lot of them are um, the kind of out of shape human beings that you would imagine, just shiftless. There's a lot of great descriptions in Legacy of Ashes of what these people look like and act like. Like William Casey was basically apparently like an ogre. Uh, Reagan didn't want to bring him to meetings because <laughs> if there was food, he would spill food on his suit. Yeah. Like that's the kind of people we're talking about here. And none of the other stuck up guys liked him. I think Casey actually maybe didn't come from as august a background as some of the other guys. I'm not sure. Um, because he just wasn't very proper. But I, that story that story pops up in a lot of different places. It's also why, funny enough, this and this is the story everybody knows about is, you know, why do we never get any good foreign intelligence? Well, maybe we should train them in the language of the country we're sending them to. <laughs> maybe you should have more than a three-week course. Yeah, three-week primer course on where you're going. That's because they're hiring these people off Wall Street. Yeah. Like, they're not, like the, there's, there's a great, this Legacy of Ashes book, it's long, but there's some nuggets in there. Um, there was a mission, I forget what the mission was, but that's not the point. The punchline of the mission was, we needed to infiltrate an organization, and we needed black guys. Where do you find black guys <laughs> in the United States? I have an idea. Let's get a costumer to develop rubber masks to disguise white people as black people. Yeah, as people of color, they had really high-tech masks. Yeah, so they that, were apparently pretty good. So that you could, like, so that you could look like a person of color. <laughs> but, you know, there, there's a really long history of, like, not allowing uh, or worrying that, um, that hyphenated Americans have more allegiance to their home country. Of than, course, yeah. And even the Germans in World War One, there was a whole big thing where they were like, there was a lot of like anti-German sentiment in um, in films leading into World War One, which have kind of the same ring as um, as contemporary racist uh, conversations, like. I remember there's a movie called The Little American where the guy is uh, one of the guys is half German and eventually he has to give in to his bestial German nature. Naturally. Um, and things like that. So it's just like um, exactly how racism works. <laughs> <laughs> like that gets applied. Yeah. So I think that's a part of the reason that they wouldn't um, is that this suspicion that um, as a hyphenated American, you're not really an American and they don't let you. Yeah, you gotta. You gotta figure out how to get that extricated. And being black makes that pretty hard, all things considered. We still have not quite figured that one out. But uh, there's, um, but the, the CIA is full of those kinds of gaffes. And that even applies here, uh, not specifically with Israel, which I'm almost glad we bounced off of because I'm not sure yet how to talk about yeah. it. Um, but in Iran, you know, why didn't we see this embassy thing coming? Well, maybe it was because the embassy was stocked pretty much entirely with people um, who hadn't been there very long. Yeah. Well, the the Israel, um, the relationship of Israel to the development of the intelligence community and the relationship of the intelligence people to Israel is pretty interesting. So when, like, when you do something awful and you get kicked out of a country and you can't, uh, as an as an American agency in the Middle East, you have to find a way to continue collecting intelligence uh, in the region. And what it suggests in Legacy of Ashes is that um, America ended up relying almost entirely on Israeli intelligence in the Middle East for, for decades. Israel is the long arm of the law for Western imperialism a lot of the time. 
Israel is where we go when we need to shuffle arms around, when we need to shuffle money around. Israel is basically, uh, it's, uh, this is obviously endorsing a very cynical view of Israel's purpose, but it seems to have fulfilled it functionally of just being a one-step-removed method of acting in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, there's some question about whether or not, like, um, whether or not that means that Israel can just do whatever it wants and oh, so, well, America it, doesn't intervene. Yeah, exactly. That, do you think that's the case? No, not quite. <laughs> it's, again, it's, it's a very cynical way to look at it, and it's definitely a half-truth, but it's... I don't know. Um... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you were saying? I don't know. I, I think that... Uh, American dependence on Israel in that region is high, at the very least, from a very conventional uh, perspective Agreed. on the situation, like just from a purely practical perspective. So is it possible that Israel could have done this without American knowledge or um, consent or um, whatever? Yes. Right? Yeah. Certainly. And... Um, but it doesn't seem more likely that there were um, that there are relationships between American intelligence and Israel that allowed them to make these deals through Israel. Yes. Yeah. That seems most plausible, and particularly given that Israel was usually selling American arms to them, they were not selling their own weapons, which is an important detail. I think maybe in all of this that Israel doesn't actually manufacture much of its um, equipment. That it, it also happens to get a lot of that imported from uh, yours truly. But um, You have American weapons. You have an American weapon system. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. And, <laughs> yeah. and um, in 1980, I think it's pretty safe to... <laughs> no, no doubt. Um, and as always, Carter being the international cock block that he is, went to uh, Menachem Begin, who I think is the, uh, I forget which, of the prime ministers of Israel um, during this time, urged him not to sell Iran anything. Mm-hmm. So if we're also looking for another place where Israel factors into this, um, Carter was expressly forbidding Israel to do this. Now, whether Israel as a puppet state is notwithstanding, going directly against the wishes of the president is kind of faux pas regardless. So even if that relationship is not quite the stranglehold that maybe some cynics think it is, that's, that's going to make it really hard for him to do, to do that. Um, but thankfully, there was another guy who was uh, maybe going to be in office soon uh, who was more lenient about that impression. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, that's how sanctions work, also, is that you have to get all of your allies to also agree not to, yeah. not to sell uh, whatever it is and to people. So here's, here's the theory. You starve the working class. Right. And then the country does what you say. Oh, okay. That sounds Even really easy. Even though none of the leaders of that country are starving, they actually have an exploitable and desperate group of people. Well, you don't want to starve the leaders because you want to be able to appeal to them so you can get the sanctions lifted. <laughs> this is really easy politics. I don't know what you're not seeing here. Actually, like, one of the interesting parts of this is the arms for hostages rhetoric because it's almost like what 
the is there some kind of like gussied upness about sanctions that I don't understand? Like if you have sanctions, even if you're not doing anything but lifting those sanctions, you're making it possible for them to get weapons. So even if you're not literally, you know, sending them a shipment of, you know, airplane wheels, you're like yeah. giving them like that whole thing. That's how that works. It's through that that exact le- leverage. That's that actually is an interesting point because it it was mostly Carter's prerogative to not make it seem like that was the case. And is that is that an instance where the principles were not merely naive but vain? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, is vain because that's a part of like our foreign policy in general. And like I don't, I we don't negotiate with terrorists. Yeah, but we do sanction put sanctions against country that's countries that starve them for decades, yeah. and then um, show up and they're oh, why do you hate America? That's the one we're going to keep coming back to, and I- even this one's a perfect example of it. Going back forty some odd years, that's essentially how we got here. Um, was that exact scenario? Hey everybody, we're back from a break that we didn't actually announce. But Alicia knows where we were, so we're going to lead off with her. Approximately. Yeah. So, um, intelligence under Carter. Carter was trying to clean up the CIA. He fired, I think, almost half the CIA, um, which they were very angry about. So you had these unemployed guys, um, some of whom are more or less actually evil, responsible for legitimately evil things. And um, they have nothing to do, and they're angry, and they want to get a guy who supports them into office. So I think, like, in terms of, like, although uh, in Legacy of Ashes, he has an interesting counterpoint to that, where he's talking about Carter's use of covert actions for humanitarian purposes. Yeah, Carter wasn't opposed to the entirety of clandestine operations. We already alluded to the propaganda, the ant. America, I guess, would call it an anti-propaganda campaign of the world, in East Europe in particular, fighting back that way without the cloak and dagger side of it. He was okay with that part. Yeah. But getting back to the cloak and dagger people. Yeah, they've been accused of a lot of, a lot of different things over the years. And like, that's one of the, um, the worthwhile things about investigating this and thinking about it deeply is that you, you end up really being able to ask the question of what they did and didn't do instead of just assuming that they're responsible for certain things. Yeah. And I I think we could talk about that a little bit in terms of uh, Iran and Khomeini in a bit. But, it, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's very hard to figure out what's going on in these cases where uh, the truth is intentionally obscured. And um, so I have wondered if there, if there isn't some... Um, disinformation happening around CIA activity where um, there it's intentionally being pushed further and further into um, kind of bizarre territory so that um, none of the accusations can stick. So, but the big things relevant to this are the arms deals 
and the um and drug running. Um, At least one of which stuck pretty hard. Yeah. In the years just after this. So. Even though nobody <laughs> nobody actually served any jail time for it. Look, we one step at a time, all right. We got to convict, then we have to actually do something about it. Hey. We'll worry about that in 20 What year did I say it was? 2035 at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. yeah. That'll be a that'll be a job for next decade. Yeah. Well, I mean all of the um, everyone got presidential pardoned. Oh, okay. By George H.W. Bush. Oh, okay. So the uh, the former CIA director pardoned all of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, so anyway, some of, some of these are very demonstrated, and um, in an effort later on, like in the future, from uh, the October surprise when Reagan is in the White House, Congress tries to prevent them from funding the Contras to stop them from being as involved in. Um, in doing this whole weird setting up dictators thing that the CIA <laughs> likes to do for some reason. And um, in order to get around that, they developed alternate sources of funding. And um, to me, there's like some strong evidence that that already existed. Because as we were discussing before, these are Wall Street guys. Like they're bankers and lawyers. They're the first globalists. <sighs> well, you know, they... Yeah, they're they're already well connected in a business sense yeah. from the foundation of the CIA, and they are um, they were recently unemployed. Like a lot of the people who were later involved, had time to develop their independent um, money making capability. Um, para intelligence organizations. Yeah, and it's interesting how much it functions the way that the CIA functions when they leave the CIA and do their own thing. So I'm sure it wasn't that complicated to, and like part of the contention here is that, that, well, the infrastructure of the organization that they're using to, um, to sell arms and make money during Iran-Contra is, uh, is already in existence. And some of that is surely just the informal network that they're a part of. And some of it is like a concerted effort to stay powerful and make money, continue making money, uh, whether or not you're being employed by the U.S. government. Though the U.S. government's complicity is, of course, a holy grail in that uh, in that equation. If you can get them involved, which getting Reagan reelected with George H.W. Bush in the wings is certainly one way to do that. Um, yeah, it definitely. They, Motive aside, making this happen, the, all of the instruments seem to have already been in place to make it happen. Um, Israel had already been doing most of the stuff, not this specific, going behind the government's back, quote unquote, the uh, United States government's back. But they had been, they've been moving stuff around. That's absolutely in their wheelhouse prior to this moment. So from that perspective, this has happened before on the logistical side. It's happened before, like you said, which we may actually investigate in Vietnam. It's been done on the governmental side, um, or the political side, I guess, would be the way to describe that. Um, so now we come, I think, we come to the other side of the ledger, which is Iran. Mm-hmm. Is there any reason to believe that Iran would be more conducive to this? Yes. Mitch McConnell in the hearing 
to uh, or in his statement about opening up the October surprise investigation um, said was trying to shut it down by saying again like that Iran Contra the Iran Contra investigation was a waste of money and we shouldn't do it and like why are you so insistent on like fleecing the taxpayers and making them uh, you know pay to satisfy your your idle curiosity driven by you know the same people who believe in aliens and psychics and all that kind of stuff so he um he in that he says the reagan campaign was approached by someone claiming to be a representative of the iranian uh, of the iranian government who uh offered to make some kind of deal with them and of course they said no and you're sitting there thinking about this campaign who whose main uh obstacle is that this hostage crisis might be resolved uh the republicans have already done this once with nixon where as private citizens they uh you know flouted u.s policy by um they they prevented the U.S. from uh, implementing a policy or resolving a conflict in order to get their guy elected. It, there's no way that somebody shows up unless you think he's a spy, you know. There's no way that somebody shows up and says, hey, are you interested? Um, and they say, no. Yeah. <laughs> unless they're lying and no means yes and they're going to, like, secretly send him a message later. Of course, yeah. The uh, the Iranian government multiple times, like we said the the earlier on, uh, Iran's quibono and all of this is that they need arms because they're about to get into a protracted fight with their neighbors. They're very well armed, very well allied neighbors, um, and they're going to need what they can get. Uh, so they want arms, and Carter won't provide them. Um, so as far as that motive's concerned, that seems completely reasonable to me. Um, whether Khomeini was an unpredictable bastard or not, um, it seems totally reasonable that they wouldn't want to kick out the guy who's not going to let them get weapons. So, and again, that's, that's the weird thing about this whole thing. If Gary Sick had not written such an extensive book full of quotes um, from just like testimony from people that, again, though circumstantial, just is independently corroborating about all these meetings and transactions and the fact that people like William Casey were involved, so of course something weird and stupid happened. It, it seems so plausible, absent Gary Six's book, which, by the way, is just called October Surprise, if you, want to, uh, if you want to flip through and see why we're just sort of hand-waving the side of the equation. It's, it seems there's, just, there's too much evidence to even point to. I'll give you, actually, I'll give you one excerpt. Um, this is, this is the kind of quote, this is the caliber of quote that we're talking about for the purpose of corroborating that maybe something happened. This is a quote from Iranian Foreign Minister Gobzadeh. Uh, there's no way that's how that's actually pronounced. Um, but this was one of the handful of guys who actually corresponded with Khomeini directly. Uh, August 16th, 1980, quote, we have information that the American Republican Party, in order to win the upcoming election, is trying very hard to delay the resolution of the hostage question until after the American election, unquote. Entirely circumstantial, not specific to the meetings. These are the kinds of things, this book is just loaded, there are hundreds of quotes implying that people saw everything about this except for the handshake. Um, 
that's that's kind of why we're glossing over that that and it's the least interesting part of this whole conspiracy the whole iran part's more fun but yeah yeah and i think there's um the the details about how the uh transaction took place etc and the kind of like level of proof that you need and the type of proof you need to get a legal conviction i think actually prevented um in some ways, the resolution of this it, through the task force investigation. Yeah. Because they were busy chasing down this one specific meeting and trying to prove that George H.W. Bush was at the meeting. And it's... It's brutally, it's almost impossible to do that. I mean, there's no... And this is, to be clear, uh, Gary Sick is not judge, jury, and executioner here. The House and the Senate both had um, independent investigations of this event and did not decide on a legal level that action needed to be taken. And that's for very, I mean, there's almost no way to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this happened within the standard definition of the law. But again, for the purpose of our kangaroo court here, I think I'm I'm perfectly fine saying that Reagan's administration did this. Um, I mean, again, Nixon literally openly, or not openly, but you know, yeah. Nixon literally did this, essentially. The Nixon campaign did this. Yeah, we've got, we have, from all sides, I mean, all of the players here, the Reagan administration wanted to delay an October surprise. The Iranians needed arms they couldn't get any other way. Israel had the facility to do this. Everything is there. I don't remember what the what the old, uh, the old line about uh, motive, means, and whatever. Opportunity. Opportunity. They're all there. And every side of this seems to gel pretty well together to make me believe that uh, Reagan's administration was more than willing to undermine the, uh, the United States election in the interest of uh, all of the aforementioned. That seems reasonable to me. Yeah. It's actually pretty hard to make the argument that people who professionally took these opportunities saw this kind of opportunity staring them in the face and turned it down. Yeah, at some point. <laughs> Like the opportunity to overcome your biggest obstacle and like dampen your deepest fear. So on the Iranian side, the um, the hatred of Carter is also very relevant. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yes. Yeah, I think that, we I think, did. We decided. Yes. Yeah, I think we decided. <laughs> I think we decided on that, and I feel like we've covered most of it. I mean, the 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 point the point about Carter being hated. Um, there is ample evidence that this happened uh, in Guess of the Ayatollah. There's a specific, it's not, um, it's not cited, there's no reference for it, but it seems like a weird detail to make up. Uh, there was apparently widespread jubilation at Carter's defeat in Iran the day it was declared. Yeah. Like, this was not just Khomeini being mad at Carter. Uh, the, the head of the U.S. Embassy, I want to say, it was either the U.S. Embassy or the CIA headquarters in Iran was saying that there was no way there was going to be another attack on the embassy. This is one of those just like Pratt Fallish Three Stooges quality statements someone made in advance of the Iranian hostage crisis. Uh, someone said that we don't need to be worried about the embassy. It's been attacked before, but the odds of it getting attacked again are incredibly low. The only thing that could possibly make this happen is if for some reason Carter were to extend amnesty to the Shah. Yeah, if somebody gives the Shah amnesty, which nobody would ever be which stupid no enough to do. Which no one would be stupid enough to do. <laughs> it's, it's, true, it's a remarkable quote. It reads like, it's, it's, 
it's just bad writing. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like yeah. you wouldn't believe it would be a disbelievable statement in a murder, like in a murder mystery. It's just, and this, those fingerprints are all over the story. There are so many great quotes from people saying this will never happen. This is ridiculous. Like this, this is a, this was entertaining to research. Yeah. Mostly the CIA, but even the parts with Iran. And again, Khomeini is an entertaining guy to read about, especially given that um, most people listening to this probably have a, the same um, anti-rosy picture of all these people. It's, it's entertaining to shatter that starting with this guy. Yeah. There's, I mean, there is some kind of like, I wonder how much I ended up laughing because it's horrifying to realize that your nation's uh, relationships with the rest of the world have been decided by a group of unelected, incompetent, entitled, like... Yeah, or at at the very least unduly influenced um, whether these, and that's the other terrible part about the CIA is how much of their operation is not even, it's not even that it doesn't reflect the will of the people. It doesn't even reflect the will of the, like, the president. Let's <laughs> <laughs> like, just do, just do whatever uh, yeah. comes to mind. Yeah. Um, it's truly I, remarkable. I do feel more confident that they're not really going to crack the big data puzzle in front of them right now. So that's yeah. Thankfully, I mean, yeah. If anyone can do it, it's not the CIA. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt about that. Although, to be fair, if you looked at a list of any organization's failings all in a row, you would just be like, "What?" <laughs> oh yeah, no. It's of course. I mean, they're being cast in an in an ill light in Legacy of Ashes, sort of deliberately, but it's not without justification. Yeah. I think the most entertaining part for me was just all of the stuff that was actually Reagan, like Reagan talking and Reagan statements. <laughs> like, I mean, first of all, just in a current contemporary, like in a contemporary political context, uh, I really want to use clips of Reagan to argue with the Trump administration because dude said basically everything under the sun, like, yeah. in Gipper voice. <laughs> so, my, my favorite was probably when, when any American is held unjustly, you know, and denied, I, when any American is unjustly denied their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the American government has to intervene. And, like, I just want to use that to argue about prisons. Yeah. Because it's literally like, like the American government is literally unjustly denying people to their their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, um, because of drug laws passed by those people, the same people who said that thing. Same people. Yeah. So history. So I think the Reagan stuff was the most fun. There was also some like classic conspiracy stuff that was pretty fun to get into like one of the um one of the people who does uh who testifies and is serious about this is named uh barbara honegger yeah and she's interesting she's a truther from what i can tell and yeah i didn't i didn't look into her too far she's a truther she has a master's degree in parapsychology excellent yeah that's the applied science level yeah (laughs) So, um, and she was really 
serious about saying that George Bush was at. I'm, there is one, the meeting where the de- this deal took place supposedly was in Paris, um, right? The yeah. Paris meeting. That's what a lot of the centers on. And uh, whether or not George H.W. Bush is there is like less clear than Casey being there. Yeah. And um, so like part of the reason that it was hard to make this argument complete was that um, there's strong evidence that George H.W. Bush was not there because he was at the Alibi Club. In case that didn't come through, Alicia, say loud and clear, where where do we think George H.W. Bush was located at the time? According to the Secret Service, he was at the Alibi Club. (laughs) (laughs) So he couldn't have possibly been at the meeting. (laughs) So uh, The wiles of the rich and powerful. Oh my god. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's where the OSS guys used to hang out back in the day. Of course. <laughs> yes. Of course. Yeah. So anyway, so she was really serious about saying that he was at the meeting. And it was just kind of an interesting like note on investigating conspiracies. It's like how much you can get pulled into these like these small details and trying to connect everything. And trying to say that it happened in one way, when it's even possible that within the government somebody conspired to prevent, like somebody who was working for the American government was actively preventing this crisis from reaching its conclusion before uh, the election. That very well could have been happening. And um, I think that was investigated a little bit, but when I think the majority of the effort and the big failure was not being able to establish George H.W. Bush's presence at the alibi, uh, sorry, at the Paris meeting. Yeah. I'm so angry. It just like, <laughs> <laughs> just like comes out of my mouth. <laughs> you know, Iran actually did make the worst deal ever made, which was the, the concessions uh, that ended up forming Anglo-Persian, which was the, the, you know, forfeiture of all of their mineral rights. Yeah. Like, um, essentially in perpetuity that that was probably the worst deal ever ever made so it's interesting like how much that stuff ends up coming up kind of almost like hypocritically where like iranians or like whoever gets accused in discourse of whatever method like whatever way they were victimized is the way that they're supposedly victimizing everybody else by making a bad deal that was interesting to think about in terms of hearing the um, intelligence people and other people in and around this conflict talk about what the Iranian psychology is, which of course is like, you know, borderline racist uh, thinking to begin with. I like, think racist is fine yeah, here. Yeah, national Re- character. Anyone listening feel free to read anyone's assessment of the psychology or just general frame of mind under which anyone was talking about Iran. It's it's pretty insulting. Yeah, and one of the accusations is, as it says in the Khomeiniism book, paranoid, which is really horrifying because you have a country that's being pulled apart by by foreign imperial powers constantly. And they're saying, um, they're, uh, you know, you become mistrustful because you don't know who's a fucking spy. 
<laughs> and if you look at some of the details of the pretenses under which people get into different countries, but like right now, because we just researched Iran, getting into Iran as CIA, like they were making a movie, right? They were pretending to make a movie. Yeah. That's how they got the masks into the country. So you have this person show up and say, look, I just want to shoot a movie in your country. I'm not doing anything. But he's actually CIA. And you start to see how you could look at any American and be like, no. Yeah. (laughs) No. You were a part of, like, foreign intelligence. And um, British intelligence was so seriously controlling and involved because they could not risk in any way losing grasp of Iranian oil, not just because um, the government bought it from Anglo-Persian or um, whoever owned Anglo-Persian, who I'm forgetting right now, at a significantly reduced cost, from my understanding, but also because they um, uh, were being run by Winston Churchill. And uh, like we talked about last time, everybody had this idea about their... uh, about how they needed oil for their navy, right? And how they needed to have a strong navy to be a great power and so on and so forth. And so, like, the the issue of oil in Iran is so critical to British national security from their conception. And especially when you have a leader like Winston Churchill, you yeah, there's no way around that. And it was so bad that they, eventually when Mossadegh took power, he kicked all of them out. That's the reason that they needed to reach out to American intelligence to uh, intervene is because because they'd all been kicked out of the country. Like every British person was just kicked <laughs> out of the country. And so, I'm curious you, how hard an operation that would have been to achieve. I wonder how many there were in Operation Ajax. No, just in. I wonder how many how many Brits oh, were operating. How in, they kicked them out. How many were operating in Iran at all? I have no idea. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing a ton. Yeah. A ton of them. And then obviously, um, obviously there, there are almost certainly some Soviet agents of some stripe operating in Iran, in Iran for most of the... Uh, it's nearby. Yeah. So I, I didn't really look into it extensively, so I'm not really as aware of the extent of their influence in shaping things. Yeah, I didn't but, look up much of anything about Russia during this uh, conversation. It didn't seem to, ironically, even though it's in the middle of the Cold War, Russia doesn't really factor into this very much. Well, it factors in in terms of the, I mean, it's, first of all, it's the excuse for American intervention. That's how they convince the CIA to intervene. On uh, uh, against Mossadegh, and then it's also oh, okay. Going back that far, I'm I'm talking specifically about the the hostage crisis. Totally, yeah. totally. I, yeah, yeah, no, in Mossadegh, of course. One for the initial reasoning, absolutely. Well, it seems like in the in Khomeini's rhetoric, Russians and like socialists are just more foreign imperialists interfering. And again, like we were joking about before, like if you ever try to investigate anything that happened uh, around around the KGB, you end up in a place where you just are like, okay, well, you, I'm just gonna have to trust my best judgment, I guess. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm literally exactly where I was like, two months ago when I decided to start looking into this. Their mystique is advertised for a reason. Yeah, they did a very good job. 
they, they did a much better job than the CIA, I guess would be the way to put it. Um, so there's a, there's a long, long, long history of foreign involvement. And Khomeini actually doesn't come from, um, like his grandfather was from Kashmir, which is... He's a regular Napoleon. Yeah, it's just funny when all the All the great leaders don't come from where they're, <laughs> from where they're leading. It's yeah, just, I mean, that's just a rule. Because who comes from where, anyway? Exactly. Um, there are a lot of interesting moments of in, in the long history, not in the hostage crisis history specifically, where you see like the relationship between states and uh, businesses within those states pretty clearly, because we like to think of businesses as being separate from the government. But if you look at, I mean, the British government especially, that's not true. Like, it's just not true. Businesses and, like, part of the the role of states practically is to clear the way for uh, for their businesses and to make the world work for businesses in the, I mean, that's what they do. Yeah. As Ian Bremmer would call it many, many decades later, state capitalism. <laughs> and then accused China of being the first country to have come up with the idea, but... That's neither here nor there. Your listeners can't see the massive eye roll that just. Just assume Alicia is rolling her eyes. My eyes just rolled to the back of my head. (laughs) I'm actually looking at the back wall right now. Yeah. So this is a this is was a good uh, place to investigate that, and then looking at the colonial settler mentality in general, and like the um the kind of imperialist entitlement to be in a place or to, you know, e- even when agents literally overthrow the existing government, like some, some commentators don't understand why, um, why a country wouldn't let you in. Like in, um, in Legacy of Ashes, there's a, it, because again, it's mostly from firsthand accounts, there's a tremendous kind of entitlement of being like, uh, of, the CIA agents, the past agents, uh, talking about trying to get into the countries and, like, why these people won't let them just, like, (laughs) do their thing. And it's like... Uh, Directive, hello. (laughs) Uh, We're clearly supposed to be here uh, for your safety as well as ours. Yeah. And I think the main thing I learned about the CIA, besides the, like, the pedigree of the OSS, was that um, we don't actually need it, probably. No, probably not. And so it does all of this weird stuff in order to justify its existence. Yeah. And it does a really poor job of it. Yeah, because it doesn't keep us safer. And it's not good at clan it's not even good at the clandestine activity. It's it's supposed to be the old again, the old saw was that it was supposed to be the president's newspaper. And it so immediately stopped being that in every possible way. It was almost every president consecutively, except for the ones that happen to have been former CIA directors, have an extremely low opinion both of their efficacy in being a newspaper for the president by just failing to presage everything, every major event, um, and influencing policy around the world, geopolicy around the world. I mean, there are things that the CIA did manage to achieve. Um, Mossadegh did get overthrown, but the expense with which that occurred was monumental, like not only in an international community sense where it damaged our reputation in the long run, but it's just an expensive thing to do. There is 
so there are so many better ways to spend the money, and we do actually well, have. Luckily, it. they can pay for a lot of it themselves. That too, they we do have. <laughs> thankfully, because they have an internally vested interest, they do back some of the bills. Um, but as we mentioned a little bit earlier, um, a lot of what the CIA does now um, is covered by the special forces of the United States, which a lot of people are not aware are relatively recent in terms of their in terms of their coordination. Uh, everybody knows the Navy SEALs. Everybody's heard of the Navy SEALs. The Navy SEALs have been around for a while, but as special operators doing what the CIA was supposed to do um, in a civilian capacity, which seems insanely dangerous and irresponsible on its face, uh, but if you know the military's doing it, whatever, someone theoretically signed off on it, at that point it's all good. The, um, we are now, as of 1980, as of Carter's attempt failed attempt to rescue these hostages. This is actually now back in the military's hands, these clandestine activities. And that seems insane that between 1945 and 1980, clandestine, essentially military operations, aggressive op- were entirely in civilian hands. Those were not military concerns. The people who were actually trained to do those things were left out of the loop entirely. So now the military-industrial complex has become whole again. And uh, prosperity will reign for another 500 years. Great. We can hope anyway. Anything do, do we have something else to cover? No, I, I don't think so. The training thing is kind of interesting. Which part? I mean, like, you can train people to kill people very well, I'm sure. I'm sure that all matters. But, like, it, one of the interesting things is if you look at the hostages and just a lot of um, the, the commentators involved in various parts of this history. They, a lot of them are like scholars on Iran. Like they're not, they're not all like, they didn't all just get the three week primer training and get dumped to get taken hostage. Is there someone in particular? Um, just like some of the British guys, uh, were definitely trained. And then I remember some of the hostages giving testimony had some kind of, uh, fluency. Oh yeah. No, when they were, yeah. When, yeah, a handful of the. A, fa- a handful of the hostages in the embassy specifically, it's the CIA side of it, as always, that has the miserably incompetent people. A lot of people in the embassy, there were plenty of senior members there who actually walked outside on occasion and talked to people. Well, it's actually one of the reasons people thought that they were CIA was that they could speak. <laughs> <laughs> Little did they know. Speak local languages. It was actually a point against them being CIA, was that they were <laughs> competent to do their jobs in the perquisite country. Well, Alicia, uh, do we have any idea what we're, now that we've shut the book on uh, the Gipper file, do we have any idea what uh, chapter three of this is going to be in uh, June, probably, when we get around to it? (laughs) Well, I'd be interested in seeing whether or not Hoover blackmailed people to get the FBI. Oh, right. That was the one we were going to do before. Yeah. I don't know how we'd go around, go about doing that, but I'm pretty sure we could do that. Then I'd also be interested in looking at um, the secret war in Laos and drug running the aforementioned Vietnam. We can do that. Yeah. We'll have to formulate a more specific uh, rumor to investigate, but uh, yeah. I'm sure we can find one. I think we can find one. Um, with that, uh, this is us probably signing off. Alicia, thank you for being part of the Machination Log. Thank you. Thanks for visiting. (laughs) Yeah.
Now the lag on this conversation is a lot better than it normally is because I made the trip up to Chicago and we're sitting around a whole lot of microphones right now. Hopefully at least one of which will be functional when I actually need to put this thing <laughs> together. Redundancy. Good morning, everyone. <laughs>